I'm Nick Hanauer. As someone who's been in and around corporate boardrooms my entire career, there's nothing I know better than the extent to which many of my business colleagues will go to lie to protect their power and profits. And in my new book, Corporate Bullshit, co-authored with Joan Walsh and Don Cohen, we make this manipulative duplicity plain as day by placing egregious past quotes from corporate executives next to the equally outrageous contemporary quotes, all of which justify outcomes that lie in pockets while harming society. Again, the book is called Corporate Bullshit, and you can pre-order the book now wherever books are sold. What people call the Protestant work ethic is so ingrained in American minds. The work ethic is very much alive in the lives of many, many Americans. We work, we work more hours yes. than our counterparts in Europe. One of the reasons that the country is so upside down and polarized is that the majority of citizens aren't compensated anywhere near the value that they create in society. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. You know, Nick, one of the things that I I missed during the pandemic is that, uh, you know, since it came on, you've delegated our annual reviews. Uh, So I don't really get your, your feedback. And I know you love my work, the quality of my work, else you wouldn't be putting up with me. But I'm, I'm curious what you think of my work ethic. Yeah, it's medium. <laughs> medium. Uh, I'm not, not my, you can see my nose. It's not to the grindstone. <laughs> no, it's not I, to the I'm grindstone. Not, I'm not earning you enough money. Enough. No, <laughs> no. Too slow and not enough. Uh, I should be working harder. Yeah. Right. Which uh, we we joke, (laughs) but the work ethic is uh, this, what people call the Protestant work ethic is so ingrained in American minds. It it gets to, you know, when we write, when we write about politics, when we're trying to instruct politicians on how to talk about the economy, one of the things that always strikes me, Nick, is... Uh, we have to use that phrase, hardworking Americans. Like yes. Americans are proud of how hard they work. And if you don't use that phrase, it's dishonoring them. And and this is true. We see it in the focus groups that yes. that is a positive to say to honor yeah. hard work when really, personally, I think that hard work is overrated. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and and you're right. I mean, you know, certainly in this country, people derive a lot of their, oh, social value, dignity and status from work. And one of the reasons that uh, one of the reasons that the country is so upside down and polarized is that the majority of citizens, I think that's fair to say, aren't compensated anywhere near the value that they create in society. And the people who make the most money in our society often contribute very little or nothing obvious. Or in some cases, uh, they- Create huge amounts of harm. 
Yeah, they they yeah. detract from the uh, from social welfare. They they're engaged in activities that are not just unproductive but are counterproductive. Yeah, a- absolutely. And you know, apropos of all of this, today we get to talk to. Well, she may be the world's expert now <laughs> in work ethic. Um, our old friend, Professor Elizabeth Anderson, who specializes in moral, social, and political philosophy, and uh, who appeared on the podcast uh, a couple of three years ago, yeah. uh, talking about her last book, uh, Private Government, How Employers Rule Our Lives and Why We Don't Talk About It. And she has a new book out called Hijacked, How Neoliberalism Turned the Work Ethic Against Workers and How Workers Can Take It Back. Uh, you know, and on this day, when we're doing this podcast, which was the, effectively the day that President Biden joined the picket lines in the UAW strike, it's just such a great day to talk to Elizabeth about this very important uh, this very important issue, that how we think about work and who we're working for and so on and so forth. So I'm Elizabeth Anderson. I'm Max Shea, Professor of Public Philosophy at University of Michigan. And my new book, just released a few days ago, is called Hijacked. How Neoliberalism Turned the Work Ethic Against Workers and How Workers Can Take It Back. And it's a romp through the history of the Protestant work ethic from the 17th century to the present. Well, thank, thanks for coming back. You know, I, I re-listened to our, uh, our last conversation with you, and oh my God, I hadn't realized it was three years ago. You lose track of time in the, in the world of COVID. And just to show how ethical we are, where we left it with you was that we would have you back on when your book came out. So uh, here you are. <laughs> uh, we've lived up to our end of the bargain. And I, I, I have to tell you, you hit a sweet spot for me, which is like uh, you said, a, a, a romp through history. This, it's a combination of intellectual history and moral philosophy and economics. Uh, if you could just start off by, uh, you know, explaining the main thesis of the book. Yeah, so... We're all familiar with a version of the work ethic, uh, which came to us from England and under which most workers today are toiling. And that's the theory that says that workers have to be drudges toiling away for the maximum profit of their employer and aren't entitled to any say in the conditions of their work because it's just nose to the grindstone for them. And that's basically what neoliberalism consigns worker to, workers to. But what I show in my book is that there's a whole other tradition of the work ethic that's been more or less repressed in the United States. And if you go back to the 17th century Puritans in England who created the work ethic, these are mostly ministers. They said, look, the real, the worst violators of the work ethic are the idle and the predatory rich. These are the people who make money without helping anybody else. They're the landlords who charge insane rents that make the yeoman farmers' lives impossible. They're the ex exploitative employers who tyrannize over their workers. They're the usurers who are 
you know, basically creditor, uh, predatory creditors who are charging exploitative interest rates. You know, there's a whole list of people, but basically they were attacking anybody who made money without contributing to society, but are just extracting wealth from it. I think we can all recognize some of those business models today. And so they said instead that workers should be honored for the work they do when it contributes to human welfare. And that means they're entitled to fair and living wages, that they shouldn't be abused at work by their bosses, and that we can trust them to internalize the work ethic so you don't have to punish and extort work out of them uh, because people actually find meaning in serving one another, in helping people out. And as long as they get recognition from that, you can be confident that they will work hard. Interesting. So, Elizabeth, how do we distinguish between the work ethic and the, a social contract? There's kind of a connection between the social contract and the work ethic, which we can trace to John Locke. Yeah. So Locke is often portrayed in contemporary political philosophy as a kind of libertarian who thinks, well, once you acquire property legitimately, you have total rights over it. You can accumulate as much as you want. And what I argue is that actually Locke was an advocate of what I call the progressive work ethic or the pro-worker work ethic, that second version of the work ethic that I just described. And that the social contract actually involves so the social contract in general is just the idea that government is established by the consent of the people and the content of our constitution has to be the kind of thing that everyone could consent to because it helps each and every individual person in society. And what Locke argues is contrary to the libertarian view uh, that in fact, once we join a social contract and establish a state, the state goes around and changes property rights, the configuration of property rights to make sure that everyone really is taken care of. So he advocates a welfare state. It's interesting in the book, you, you mentioned not just Locke, but also uh, Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill, that today they're like heroes of libertarianism. But you say that that's a a uh, misinterpretation. How is it <laughs> that the right managed uh, to hijack these uh, philosophers to serve their end? So you interviewed me last time about private government, and in a way, hijacked is uh, a sequel to that earlier book. Right. Because what I'm arguing is that at the time of the Industrial Revolution, we see a split in the work ethic between these two different versions, one which is very demanding of workers and the other which actually honors workers and calls for those rewards that they should get. But the reason for that is that the Industrial Revolution itself divided people into you know, a capitalist class and a worker class who were completely distinct groups of people, whereas the model workers for the Puritans of the 17th century were yeoman farmers and craftsmen. 
And these were people who owned their own capital. They were small business people. If the yeoman didn't literally own the farm that they labored on, they had a 99-year lease. Yeah. Very long-run lease so they could afford to invest in the productivity of the soil and in farming implements and so forth. So both of them, they, they got the rewards in virtue of working hard because they also owned their own productive capital. And so at the Industrial Revolution, because these two classes of people, the owners and the workers split apart, you also get an ideological fight where the work ethic is split apart, right? Where, right, the capitalists say, well, we're the ones who should get all the benefits of that hard work. <laughs> and the workers say, what are you talking about? Like, the work ethic says, we're the ones who should be getting the benefits, <laughs> right? And so that's where we got that split between the two work ethics, one basically articulating the interests of capitalists and the other articulating the interests of workers. And what I argue in Hijacked is that the workers were right. That's a more authentic version of the work ethic, given that the Puritans railed against extractive and predatory business models by which capitalists can just, you know, <laughs> use their monopoly power and so forth to extract wealth from other parties without giving anything back. Now, of course, it does mean that, say, small business people who are actually actively involved in running their firm they count as workers under the work ethic. So it's not a pure split between capitalists and workers. But the Industrial Revolution, you had an awful lot of people who really were engaged in extraction. And of course, you could say the same about private equity today and predatory banking and so forth. So your book traces this intellectual history from the, what is it, 1600s on? Yeah. You know, I was just, for whatever bizarre reason, reason rereading or reading for the first time, actually, some of Will, Dur you remember the, the, the historian Will Durant? Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I took myself through Greece and Rome and so on and so forth. I was struck, and I, I don't mean to imply that Will Durant is the authority on these subjects, but that he just raised the same kind of issues uh, the tension between workers and businesses and exploitation and stuff like that uh, from those days, too. So w one of my questions is, how old is this split? Is this split in how we think about work as old as humanity? Or did something truly new happen in the ah, last couple hundred years? Yes. So here's the thing. Of course, Throughout human history, the rich have always wanted the poor to work really hard for them, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Yeah. The difference is, and this is really what made the work ethic a moral revolution in the 17th century, it's that exaltation part. It's the idea that workers need to be honored, that our work activity is a fundamentally meaningful and important activity that we should respect and honor. You didn't see that in ancient Rome. Right. Right. So in fact, my argument is it's the uplifting of workers that is the moral revolution. In the industrial revolution, I'm sorry, in the Protestant work ethic at its origins, because it's saying this is central to the meaningfulness of human life, of our activities, 
Whereas before, everyone's aspiration was to become leisure, to have other people work for them, but not to have to lift a finger for anybody else. And in the in the conservative version, it still says we have to work hard, but our reward is in the next world, not in this one. <laughs> That's one version, right? <clears throat> <laughs> or some of them just think, well, the rich are better than anybody else, so they should get the profits, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> yeah, are, you having a, are you having a problem with this, Nick? Is this a... <laughs> <laughs> I'm clearly not making you work hard enough, though. This is what's going on yeah. in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's funny you say that, Nick, because, you know, I think some people listening to this might think, oh, yeah, you're talking to a philosopher. How is this really relevant in most people's lives? But if I'm a little bit introspective, I, God, it's, it's almost embarrassing how much this work ethic is internalized. I lead a pretty ascetic lifestyle. I mean, maybe you not you as my boss might not think I have a work ethic. Yeah. Um, but I certainly when I, I everything I I do is about is about my work. I mean, that's what I care about most is uh, my impact on the world. Am I having impact? Am I making it better or worse? Um, I scrimp and I save and. You know, you pay me a lot more, Nick, than I made uh, before I went to work with you. And yeah. it doesn't really show up in my spending because I I have this idea that I should be frugal, which is part of this work ethic. And I didn't get this from church, obviously, uh, or from synagogue. I'm not a religious person. And yet uh, here I am ascribing to almost all of the American work ethic. Yeah. Elizabeth, again... How does this happen? How does it how does it capture us this way? You know, uh, first of all, I do think that right not every society has this. I do think that the work ethic is very much alive, you know, in the lives of many many Americans. We work we work more hours. Yes. than our counterparts in Europe. Um now part of it is just constraint because, you know, only half of all American workers even have paid vacation and they get that through their employer. We're the only rich country in the world that has exactly zero days of state guaranteed paid vacation. <laughs> but it's also the case that I think Americans tend to be a bit driven by their work. They, you know, they, they find that a center of meaning during their work lives. And a lot of it is because people don't want to feel useless. You know, there's been discussion lately about uh, the crisis of men. Uh, men, I think, suffer more from a crisis of uselessness, if the, a feeling of uselessness, if they're unemployed, you know, if they've been fired or laid off and yeah, can't that's find because work. It, yeah, that's because we're more status conscious. Uh, partly that, but also I yeah. do think that women who have, who have dependent care responsibilities, it's not paid labor, but boy, are they needed. They feel yeah, very needed correct. by that. Yeah. And, but yeah. that's a very gendered kind of, you know, activity in America. Men find it hard to hard to get a sense of who they are and, uh, you know, through dependent care work. But you're not arguing that we should, or are you, that we should work less or less hard? Well, I do think Americans really need paid vacation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's okay. Let's level set. It, let's let's just level set and say that it is a crime against humanity 
that Americans are not guaranteed four weeks of paid vacation a year like everyone else in the developed world. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The, the, okay. The, yeah. It's just, and it is nuts. And by the way, terrible for the economy in in addition to everything oh, else. Yes, it's that, awful. That, yeah, that, that we don't have that. But just stipulate for a moment that we got there, that you could snap your fingers and all of a sudden Americans would, would be operating, you know, sort of at the global... <laughs> average of you know reasonable work hours and and adequate vacation and so on and so forth look i don't mean to oversimplify but uh or or or, um stereotype too too harshly but the difference between a hard driving american and an italian who takes more time and enjoys their life and so on and so forth these are very different ways of approaching life right yeah are you arguing that the Italian way is better than the American way? Are, are you arguing that the Scandinavian way is better than the American way? I think that's closer, yes. So one okay. of the things I argue is that social democracy is actually the culmination of this pro-worker work ethic that we can see actually existing in the Scandinavian in the countries yeah. primarily, but other social democracies too, the Netherlands, for instance. I mean, one of the things that I think is so important and interesting about your argument is that one of the good things about a more advanced civilization like the one that we have in a highly advanced technological capitalist economy is that it has made a greater and greater proportion of jobs pretty easy to attribute meaning to. So one of the reasons that Goldie lives for work is that our work is so interesting and fun, <laughs> right? Like it just- Oh, I can relate totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like it just is an incredible blessing to get to do what we do every day. And in particular, if you care about having impact to do what we do. And, you know, 200 years ago, there might've been 1% of humans on earth that could make a claim like that. That they had a that that they had work that felt meaningful in that way. I'm not so sure. I think more. But you think more? Well, you know, you know what? what? Here's here's yeah. the thing: is that when people were yeoman farmers and and craftspeople, that's a different situation, right? But I'm thinking about the industrial revolution. Oh right? yeah, yeah, where, yeah. yeah. Right. You know, where huge numbers of people are either starving in the fields or slaving in the in the factories, and there are some. Rich right. landowners and drudgery, yeah, boring, yeah. stultifying, yeah, horrible, yes, yeah, dangerous, dangerous. Yeah. yeah, right, <laughs> right. Okay, that's what's in my head. Yeah, is yeah. it in that world? One percent of people are feeling like life is great and interesting and 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 dignified and meaningful, and everybody else is like, oh, kill me now, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, certainly. There are lots and lots and lots of people in the advanced societies who still have crappy jobs, but everyone you know, Elizabeth, has a great one, <laughs> right? You know, it's a really interesting thing. So, right? What? But well, let's put it this way: there's the content of the labor. So, if you're, you know, in the broadly in the professional managerial class, yeah, or doing things like you know, acting. <laughs> performance arts, that's kind of stuff. Yes, your job is endlessly interesting. And it's also fulfilling in the sense that it enables you to exercise pretty sophisticated talents. And most people really enjoy that. Yeah. 
Um, it's it's fulfilling. It's meaningful, and you also get recognition back. You yes. know, if you do your job well, and that's also huge. So yeah, these kinds of jobs are really great. But here's the thing: you might have noticed a while ago, the Washington Post published a survey that gathered from data from the Department of Labor on the happiest and most miserable workers. Yep. The happiest workers were lumberjacks. Do you remember that? <laughs> I didn't see that. <laughs> now, you have to give credit to lumberjacks, though. That's actually pretty sophisticated labor. I mean, yeah. it's really hard to down a tree <laughs> safely. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. So, so, Monty, so Monty Python had some insight there, as yeah. usual. Correct. But not just lumberjacks. <laughs> it was like farmers are on top, fishers. But again, these are actually quite highly skilled jobs. And, and you're outdoors. It's refreshing. You're with nature. There's a lot of nice things about that. Whereas, believe it or not, one of the lowest ranked in terms of work satisfaction was the professional class, professionals and scientists. What's going on there? Scientists, really? Yeah. And I think I actually have a section in my book on the proletarianization of the professional classes. And I know this from my husband, who's a, uh, he's in internal medicine, but he works for one of these giant, sprawling healthcare organizations with dozens of clinics and hospitals and so forth. And, you know, he loves the content of his work. That is his core duties of taking care of patients. He would do yeah. this endlessly. He loves every minute of it. But he's locked into a system that drives him absolutely insane. <laughs> you know, I'll just give you an example. He'll open up his electronic patient records, which are optimized not for giving you precisely the information you need to take care of patients. Let the me information, guess. Yeah, why don't you guess? It, insurance coding. Well, there's coding. It's all about <laughs> maximizing billing. In profit. He now gets, you know, used to be he'd open up the records, he'd get red flags about, you know, some lab result or something. Now he gets red flags because some AI is alerting to him to the possibility that maybe he has undercoded. And if he revised the entry, they could make more money, bill more for his services. It drives him crazy. He hates it. He has mandatory seminars he has to attend on how to upcode. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so, so, Elizabeth, I think I have an example that might be even closer to home for you. And that is, you know, as fulfilling as your job is, imagine if instead of being a tenured professor, you were an adjunct. Absolutely. That's part teaching, of, yes. Yeah. You're te teaching the exact same material, but poorly paid with no job security whatsoever. Correct. And also what that means, as we've seen more and more frequently, is that without job security, and let's keep in mind, these adjunct professors, they are teaching more than half, I think might even be around 70% of all student credit mm -hmm. hours, something like that. Yeah, that's the number. And know. they're they're actually paid if you actually count up the hours, they're paid well below minimum wage. Wow. Because it's not just the hours in the classroom. There's also all the yeah. hours in preparation and grading papers and all kinds of other things. Right. So this is a way neoliberalism, with its distorted version of the work ethic, has turned a 
great job into a terrible job. Absolute drudgery because you have to, you basically have to teach so many courses you run ragged in order to survive. Hmm. And, and you see this increasingly throughout the economy. So I, I'm just trying to get back to the current day practical Absolutely. impact of how neoliberalism has used the conservative work ethic to really make this a terrible economy for the vast majority of workers. Yeah, it's about proletarianizing everybody, <laughs> right? Turning everyone into a drudge like they managed to do during the Industrial Revolution. And at, this, at the same time, because it, it rewards extractive work, uh, which is something that the, that the Puritan theologians wouldn't have approved of, uh, because essentially it values your worth in the, in the money you earn, we actually have a less productive and less innovative economy than we otherwise would have with a more progressive work ethic. Absolutely. And in academics in particular, one of the key things that is taken away from adjunct instructors is autonomy over their teaching. Mm -hmm. Right, because now, you know, you say something that the higher administration doesn't like or that provokes controversy, and suddenly your contract isn't renewed. You're effectively fired because adjuncts often live on, you know, a semester by semester contract. <laughs> hmm. Wow. So, g given all this, A, did you think it was pretty awesome that President Biden went and did the picket lines <laughs> with the UAD, UAW workers? <laughs> Absolutely historical and high time, you know? God, no kidding. Isn't that just the greatest damn thing ever? Absolutely. <laughs> that is so cool. What um, I but, thought was was historical, Nick, were the, the headlines, the pundits, whatever, just uh, the critics who are just, oh, how could he do this? This is this is unprecedented, unprecedented for a president to uh, take sides in a labor dispute. <laughs> As if we've never had a president that violates norms. Yeah. <laughs> this is the norm. This is the norm that you're upset about. Yeah. You're taking sides in a labor dispute. Can we turn to what we should do? What's your prescription for the future? How do we, how do we get out from under this problem? Yeah. So, look, I do think that... Job number one is empowering workers. And that means in the American context, I actually think we need to reform uh, the law of labor unions in this country. Because right now, it's the law has been rigged to make it almost impossible to organize. Whereas if you look over in Europe, you have things like sectoral bargaining, where it's, you know, union workers can bargain on behalf of all workers whether they belong to a union or not, across whole sectors of industry. That's an ambitious reach for us. But I do think reforming labor law would be a critical way to expand the power of unions. Yeah, you point out that the that private sector uh, union membership isn't much higher in France, but the French unions are negotiating on behalf of non-union workers. That's correct, yes. And you see this across the Scandinavian countries as well. Very broad union power. Yeah, but what is, what, what's the idea that we should hold in our head when we think about work? Workers need to be honored. 
for the job they do. But also we need to focus on making that work more meaningful, like actually useful and not just extractive or assisting capitalists in right, extracting wealth from everybody else. Uh, the, the quickest way to do that, of course, is to pay people more, <laughs> which forces you to make the work meaningful. Well, it's complicated, though, because, you know, I have to say I'm pretty uh, skeptical. If you look at, say, where elite universities are sending their graduates, it's, to it's the worst disproportionately places. it's in consulting and finance. I'm talking about the really elite places. If they're not going into the professions, they're going into consulting and finance. And both of those are kind of problematic industries. Yes, totally extractive. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's really true. And they're very highly compensated, obviously. Uh, so yeah, if there's one thing we know, it's that the, the, the amount of er money you earn is, does, not, does not reflect your social value. Right. And, but in fact, that's part of our, I think, perverted work ethic ideology yeah. in America is to think that how much you make is a sign of how much you know how much you have you know are paid is a sign of how much you've contributed to society it's just wrong yeah that's not true you use a term in the book uh which i i loved the the economy of esteem you argue that that needs to change Absolutely. That means workers need to be honored. And, I, you know, you had just yeah. had um, Michael Sandel on, right? And he's uh -huh. saying the same thing. It's very yeah. important. 100%. 100%. Yeah, this is a central argument in his, in his last book, which is that, you know, we have turned all this stuff upside down in a really pernicious way. Yeah. Okay, so a couple of final questions. Our benevolent dictator question, uh, if, if you were in charge and had no political constraints, what would you do? Ha. Well, I'm actually a pragmatist in the Dewey tradition. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm a deep believer in experimentation, social experimentation. But Dewey always connected that to deepening democracy, right? This is collective experimentation where ordinary people take stage front and center and that requires democratizing work. So I would want to have workers have much greater say in how work is organized, really perform democratic functions. There's a way to do that through works councils, co-determination where workers sit on the board. And that active practice of collective autonomy in a kind of participatory form in the workplace can also help reinforce democracy at large in various government units uh, and hopefully help us overcome the temptations towards authoritarianism that we're seeing in many of the democracies today, especially in the United States. Yeah, interesting. interesting. And that, of course, was core to the original social democratic vision. Yeah, absolutely. It was about democracy. Not yeah. just about a welfare state or about passively receiving stuff from the government. <laughs> that was very much about empowering people by deepening democracy across domains of life. Is there any hope for that in the United States? Because, you know, our, our work ethic uh, is so, even repeatedly, so counter to experience, to the empirical evidence. I'm thinking back to, as we were coming out of uh, the pandemic restrictions, 
all, all this angst over uh, the great resignation and quiet quitting that somehow, you know, by uh, giving people money to keep them from starving or becoming homeless, we were people would not go back to work. And of course, that all turned out to not to be true that, you know, we have a very low uh, unemployment right now and very high levels of workforce participation, high, higher than we had before the pandemic. And yet it doesn't seem to change minds. We still <laughs> have this punitive uh, attitude towards uh, the working poor, not just the poor, but the working poor, that somehow it's their fault. And that seems just so grounded in what we understand to be the Puritan ethic, that you're your, your lot in this world is basically a sign of your grace before God. Oh, I, th I agree with you that that picture is deeply embedded in uh, many Americans' consciousness, but it's, it's just grounded on a fundamental error. And a lot of it is that Americans don't really think structurally and are very resistant to thinking about how outcomes are dictated far more by structures of opportunity than they are by, you know, individual effort or merit. So the way, you know, I think the easiest way to, to think about this is, you know, a ladder. So you have each rung designates an amount of pay, okay, that you might get in different occupations. And the structure of that ladder has nothing to do with your particular efforts, right? Like the distance between the rungs or the distance between the top rung and the bottom rung, which would be a measure of inequality. None of those things has anything to do with your individual efforts. And what we've seen under neoliberalism with increasing inequality, it's kind of like making the ladder massively taller and also ripping out a lot of the middle rungs <laughs> so that, you know, most people end up way at the bottom with a huge gap between them and the people at the tippy top. But that has something to do with their efforts or lack of effort. It has to do with who got to build the ladder in the first place. Who had the ear of the lobbyists to rig the rules so as, for instance, to dismantle the effectiveness of antitrust law so that the monopolies can just rake in more and more profits just because they're a monopoly? But, but in the same way that I have internalized the asceticism of the work ethic, it strikes me that most Americans and, and the ones suffering under it the most have internalized the, the, the rewards side of it. The, the, they think, I mean, I think that's where you see a lot of the depths of despair coming from. People believe it is their own fault. And I, I just don't know how you get all those people massed in the, at the bottom of the ladder to change the way they, they view the world and view themselves. I you mean, know, I, I, think, I, think that, I think Americans are coming to see that yes. the system is rigged against them. Yeah, I think young people are not buying it. But even a lot of older people are seeing yeah. something's not right here. Yeah, right. I think yeah. we've I think we've we've reached peak neoliberalism in terms of ideology and it's on its decline. That's for sure. I think Elizabeth this this explains also uh the our current neoliberal push for STEM education is that we don't want young people to be taking philosophy classes. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> 
too dangerous. <laughs> get back to the coding. Get back to the code. Don't. That's well, right. you know, but now yeah. we have AI who's coding. So I mean, yeah, so, how yeah. many how many low level coders are going to keep their jobs? I'm not so yeah. sure. Yeah, it's yeah, true. We know what we need to do is is uh, train the AI on philosophy. <laughs> Since they're the yeah. ones that are going to be running the world. Uh, That's right. uh, <laughs> so, Nick, do we want to get to the final question? And if so, I think it has. I don't think we've ever had an interview where it is uh, more on point. Do you want to ask it, Nick? W why do you do this work? Why do I do this work? Uh-huh. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Be <laughs> consistent here with your book. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> philosophers, like political philosophers, want to basically enable people to understand the path in order both to recognize the ways in which we've gone wrong, but also to provide resources for thinking about how to make the world better. And in uncovering this tradition of the work ethic, I think I'm doing both things. One showing how the work ethic in part originated some, from some pretty problematic ideas, which we've carried with us without justification. But then in another part actually has major resources for uplifting the status of workers and for creatively thinking about how to make our work lives better. And so that's what gives me meaning in life is, you know, I'm, I'm supplying ideas for people that I hope can help us remake the world in better ways. It's a perfect answer to a very hard question. Yeah, I think I think you may have just uh, th that would be my answer too, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not my it's not my only answer, Nick. Also, yeah. I, I like to win. I know. But <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with us again. It's always so great to talk to you. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be on your show. It's such an interesting conversation and it, you know, such an interesting book and it really does force people like you and me who are definitely have that Protestant work ethic, right? Like we're hardcore, but it does, it's such an interesting issue of how, how to think about work and how, it, how to situate it in our lives and how to situate work in the broader economy. Even the term work ethic is complex, and I'm still thinking about it, I, I just how it intersects with the social contract and how our relationship to work should be vis-a-vis -vis other people and the rest of the economy, these very complicated and interesting things. Well, um, you know, I'll tell you again, and I tried to come back to it a bit, and it's it's hard, I think, for people to imagine. Oh, you're talking to a philosopher. Good for you. You can you can afford the time to do that. What does that mean for my life? And I think back. She points out in the book that the the first half of the 19th century in Britain, as the the most horrible part of the Industrial Revolution the most immiserating part of it, in that first half, wages stagnated in, or fell during the first half of the 19th century, even as productivity grew faster than at any time in human history. Productivity just took off with industrialization, and workers saw none of that, that 50-year period. It wasn't until the second half of the, of the uh, 19th century when workers started to organize uh, that you started to see gains uh, for workers. 
Sound familiar, Nick? A 50-year period where productivity grew and workers saw none of it, uh, none of the gains from it, the vast majority of people. And we were were told, oh, that's because you didn't, you're unskilled. You didn't, there's a skills gap. There's an education gap. Go learn STEM. It's a very similar period of time. And it is uh, the result of social norms and... Uh, ways of thinking about uh, society and the economy and one's own place within it. And I think that, as I said, I expect I, I express some skepticism that we can change the American mindset because it is so deeply ingrained. Uh, but this is something we've talked about a lot yeah. on the podcast over the past few years, Nick, that we we can't change the economy without changing the way we think and talk about the economy. Yeah, and I do, but I do think that there's an opening today. I think that it's so clear to so many people that the game is rigged and that they're not working for themselves. They're working for some distant plutocratic overlord, as you like to say. Uh, uh-huh. um, yeah, and that, that make doesn't make very much sense. Again, you, you know, uh, as I said in the interview, the president of the United States picketing with workers, like that's a moment, right? That's a moment. And, you know, I just think it says a lot about the changing zeitgeist. And hopefully the pendulum is swinging in a different direction today. It's interesting how things coincide. It's also the day that the that his administration has uh, brought an antitrust suit against uh, Amazon.com. Your, yeah, your old friend yeah. Jeff. I know. And, his, and yeah. his monopoly. And that shows a very different way of thinking about the economy and the role of the power of capital within it to do what it pleases. Yep, absolutely. Well, always so fun to talk to Elizabeth Anderson. We highly recommend the book. It is called Hijacked, How Neoliberalism Turned the Work Ethic Against Workers and How Workers Can Take It Back. It just came out this week, last week, as the time we're recording it, a couple weeks ago by the time you you hear this. So we urge you to get a copy at your local independent bookstore or at the target of a federal antitrust suit, if that's what works better for you. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.